Uh, good morning. Uh, I'm Blake, in case I haven't met you yet, and uh, I want to encourage you to, uh, if you have a Bible, or if you have a Bible app, find Luke 9. We're going to have that on the screen if you don't have that. And while you're finding that, uh, let me tell you just a, a couple of more tidbits about the Sullivan family uh, and, and Christ Community's relationship with Sparrow Missions in Honduras. Uh, you might have been able to tell our ages are about the same, six, seven years, and, and what God is doing in, in Honduras is incredible. So through Sparrow, uh, there's, there's all kinds of ministries going. There's a school that has been started. There's orphanages that are being built. And um, it has been our absolute joy and pleasure to just join them in that in a multitude of ways. And so uh, we got another trip coming up June 11th to the 18th. And today you can get more information from Stephen, who is leading worship up here, uh, on what it looks like to join in that trip. There's going to be an informational meeting uh, the 25th, Wednesday the 25th. So uh, don't miss out on that opportunity, all right? Hey, uh, today is also uh, the last sermon in uh, our series uh, that we've called Restore. And if you've been here for uh, the couple, last couple of weeks, um, you might know that uh, this, this idea of restore is more than just a sermon series. This is a theme that as a church, we are pressing into. We, we are figuring out what does this look like for us as a church because uh, Christ's community is in year seven. We're in year seven, and there was this Old Testament idea of something called the year of Sabbath. And um, we're pressing into not the, like the legalistic, like we're not going to do anything type of, you know, whatever. But, but what does it mean to be restored by God? That was the, the intent of the Sabbath. What does it mean to be restored by God uh, in today's busy, crazy, never stop culture? And so it's been a fun uh, journey pressing into that. Today is our, our last series in that in Luke chapter 9. And um, out of that, our church is, is embracing three initiatives for this year that we think are, are really simple things, but things that are going to help us be restored by God. And so um, every fourth Sunday, beginning with next Sunday, January 22nd, um, we're going to do something that we call Love Shelbyville. Our Love Shelbyville days, uh, we meet here at 10, and then we go and we serve the community in a ton of ways. We work with our partners, uh, Gospel Center partners, and, and other things, homes, you're hearing about, more about it later. But uh, we're going to do that every month, every fourth Sunday, and we think that that restores us to who God has called our church to be. We're also reading through the New Testament together. Uh, we're on Matthew 11 starting tomorrow, and so um, you can grab um, sheets or find that online to jump in with us there. And then we're also, as we talked about last week, praying for one person to know Christ, praying for one person that needs to be rescued by Christ for the entire year. What if we just prayed for that one person for the whole year? And, and already some of the stories of, of people praying for people is, um, is pretty inspiring. And so um, there's cards that can help guide you uh, through that uh, at the information desk, too. So those are kind of the three ideas, initiatives around Restore. And uh, today we're going to press into this last sermon series because as we think about this idea of Restore and Sabbath rest and like all this maybe countercultural stuff of like, I don't know, taking a break every once in a while... Um, there's a temptation to become lazy in that. So like, what does it look like to work as we think about this idea of rest and, and being restored? So uh, if you found Luke 9, follow along with us, beginning in verse 51. Uh, if not, we're going to have that on the screen for you. And then we're going to pray. We're going to pray for our one person uh, that we've been praying for. And we're also going to just pray that God would speak through his word. Luke 9, 51 says, As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. 
But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. So they went on to another village. As they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, Foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. Well, then he said to another person, Come, follow me. And the man agreed, but he said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. Still another said, Yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told him, Anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you inspired uh, the, the writing of Scripture. Uh, and God, we, we thank you that it's a, a living, uh, completely true document that, that changes us, that speaks to us. It is your word to us. We're thankful for that, God. We pray that it would speak today through your Holy Spirit. And God, today we also just want to take a moment to pray for those that, that don't know you, that need to be rescued by you. So we pause for just a minute and, and we think of those people, we, we lift them up to you. God, we pray that, that they would know the truth. We pray that they would know the truth of your word, maybe even today. We pray that they would know the truth of the gospel, the truth about your son, Jesus that both God and man, he came to die so that we might live. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right. Um, so at the risk of showing a video that maybe everyone in the room has seen, it's just awesome. It's like one of my favorites. And it, it helps to illustrate maybe a, a little bit of attention that we see in our text today. So um, without further ado... Uh, please join me in watching It's Not About the Nail. It's just, there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head and it's relentless and I don't know if it's going to stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever going to stop. Yeah. You do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there. Stop trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing. You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. No, see, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, out. you're not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just. Sometimes it's like there's this achy, I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. I, that sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. Ow! Oh, come on. Ow. If you would just... Don't... It's not about the nail. Love that. Don't know if anybody else has ever had an encounter like that. Don't raise your hand if you have. 
So we watch this video. There's, a, there's some humor to it, right? Uh, I'm, I'm going to Jesus juke this video for just a minute, all right? Um, what if each one of us is a whole lot more like the woman sitting there with a nail on her forehead than what we want to admit? We sang a song and just, you know, just a few minutes ago, like, it was, worship was awesome. Like, I was, I was pumped today. Like, some days it does it, some days it doesn't. Today was good for me, right? What, that's really selfish. But anyway, we sang this song, and we're talking about being the bride of Christ, being ready when, when Jesus comes as, as his bride. For just a minute, think with me uh, and put ourselves in that video with Christ. Christ is our husband, seeing clearly what the problem is. And trust me, there's like no narrative about actual marriage relationships here, okay? Right? <laughs> Keep it, keep it in the spiritual zone for a minute, right? Christ is sitting there. He sees clearly what, what our sin problems are. He sees clearly what is causing us pain. He sees clearly the things that are, are preventing us from being the person that, that he has created us to be. And we're sitting there saying, it's not about the nail. Right? It's not a, it's not a Jesus, I know you know me and all that stuff, but it's real. I, I can get by with this sin. I can, I can avoid really dealing with the real issue. Jesus, what I really need for you is just to be there for me. We do that all the time, right? Maybe I'm alone in that, but I know I do that all the time. And I think there's this temptation as we press into the idea of restore that, that we can become like the wife in this short video. We recognize problems, right? We're, we're not ignorant. We recognize problems in our lives. We recognize problems in our homes, in our community, our families. And we don't really want to fix them. We just want somebody to listen and to empathize and to hear our pain. And it all leads to this principle that I think we see here in this passage, that we would rather fight to protect our sin than actually let Jesus fix it. We would rather induce a fight to protect our sin than to let Jesus fix our sin problem. Last week, uh, in our community group, uh, we were studying Deuteronomy 5 from, from the sermon last week, and, and Josh made an observation about how when we put something in the place of God, it talks about idols in that passage, right? Like, when we put something in the place of God, it can have impact on, on the generations to come after us. Like, if I make an idol in my life, it could affect my children and, and my children's children. And, and as we come to this short passage today, we can see this principle playing out again, right? That that if we, will, if we will hide our sin, if we will try to, to fight against being really fixed by Jesus, uh, then, then that's going to happen, right? We've, we've made something more important than Jesus in our lives. And so, if you would, think with me for a minute about how many of us know that maybe our parents or our grandparents have, have struggled with certain things in life. It's not condemning them, it's just recognizing the fact that we're, we're all people with pains and struggles and hang-ups. And yet, we're convinced, right, we are, we are almost certain that we somehow, under our own power, can fix the problems that our parents or our grandparents never could. We hide it in language like, I will never be like my dad. I will never be like my, I will never do what they did, right? And over time, we find ourselves becoming more and more like them. And in some, in some areas, maybe it's not a big deal, but then in others, it's, it's more significant. We see our family fall victim maybe to debt. They're just riddled and strapped by debt for generations and generations. And we swear we'll never use a credit card. We'll never buy things we can't afford. And, and yet, all of a sudden, 
We have a need, we have a want, and we end up in the same place that, that they were. We see our family maybe fall victim to divorce. And we, again, we don't condemn them for any of these things, but, but we, we recognize that we see the problem and we promise ourselves we're never going to let ourselves be that person. If, if, if God would bless me with a spouse, I'd be like, that will never, ever happen. Or we've seen parents or grandparents who, who harbor racist attitudes. Right? Like it's, it's a part of our past. Like we can see and recognize the problem from past generations, and yet we tell ourselves that, well, that's not me. I don't believe that. We can fix, we, I can fix that problem just because they believe doesn't mean that I do. It's not about the nail, right? And the worst part is, is that we don't want anyone, sometimes we don't want anyone, including Jesus, to fix those problems in our heart. We just want people to listen. We just want people to empathize. We just want people to know our pain. Well, Jesus does those things, but Jesus wants to do more than that. Jesus wants to do more than that. And that's the good news that we see in this story today. In this passage today, we're also introduced to two two guys named James and John. Now, James and John were super committed to following Jesus. He had called them to be his disciples. They were on this journey with Jesus like they were in. I mean, after all, Jesus had completely changed their lives. He had called them to be his disciples. But I'm not sure, even though they had said yes and followed him, that they were ready for Jesus to fix what was wrong inside of their heart. They weren't ready to let go of all of that. We picked the story up in verse 53. It says, but the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. And so when James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. What? What is is going on here? Okay, so there's a, a real problem here. The people of the village were Samaritans. They were Samaritans. And they weren't welcoming Jesus because he was a Jew and he was headed for Jerusalem. Right? Like, that's where the Jews went. And so there's a racial tension at the core of this story where the Samaritans are saying, we don't want no Jew in our town. Now, maybe James and John didn't harbor those feelings, right? Maybe they had, had heard the good news of Jesus and were like, race shouldn't be a thing. Culture, like, these differences shouldn't be a thing. And, 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 but they had been surrounded by it. It still affected them. And James and John, they assumed that that if they will just uh, prove their loyalty to Jesus by inserting themselves as his personal bodyguards, that, that they're going to impress Jesus. Somehow, I, like, I picture James and John shifting from like, these holier-than-thou disciples in cloth robes. Like, all of a sudden, like, in a moment, they, f- they flip to like, these gangsters that are out to protect Jesus. Right? It's like, yo, Jesus, you want me to call down some fire on their heads? Like, come on, let's do this. You know, like, that ain't right. But Scripture says Jesus turned and rebuked them. And I have an inkling that there's a bit of this moment that gets lost in the translation. Like we can just jump over the words on the page and not really. Because I just can't really see Jesus like walking down the street. They're trying to bring down fire. And Jesus turned around and said, James and John, I rebuke you. I rebuke you. No, I like, I just, there's just something more to this moment. And, and so Jesus rebukes them. And, and then they go on. But if I let my human nature take over, if I put myself in James and John's shoes for just a moment, if I allow myself to be ruled by my emotions, I'm with James and John. Like, Jesus, let's fix this problem, right? For generations, the Jews and the Samaritans haven't got along. Like, enough is enough. 
We should be able to like jump in and get this taken care of. This ain't right. Jesus, surely you're not okay with this. And surely he wasn't. And yet he turns and rebukes them. And they move on with the journey. So why does that happen? It happens because we would rather fight to protect our sin than let Jesus fix our sin. James and John were just like us, right? They wanted to fight to protect the sin in their own hearts rather than than let Jesus fix and expose the sin that lived inside of them. And so if we find ourselves like James and John, and if we find ourselves maybe wrestling with this idea that there is sin that, that I think I have control of, that I've never really let Jesus restore in me, then maybe we should consider today what Jesus would say to us when he turns and rebukes us. What does he say to us? And I think the truth of the gospel that we see in this passage is is this, that our restoration is guaranteed because of Jesus' resolution. Our restoration is guaranteed because of Jesus' resolution. You see, in this passage, it's kind of bookended by this idea that Jesus was on a mission. He was resolute. He was resolved to fix our sin problem. Look at me. Look with me at, uh, at verse 51, the very first verse of this passage. It says, As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jesus was resolved. He was going to make it to Jerusalem. And then we have several verses of all these barriers, these obstacles, these excuses as to why people couldn't join him or these roadblocks to actually getting there. And at the end, verse 62, Jesus comes all the way back around to this idea of of being resolved. And it says, but Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Our restoration our being restored to who God created us to be, our ability to to get away from the sins, to be forgiven of the sins in our life is guaranteed because of Jesus' resolution to get to Jerusalem and die on the cross. If Jesus was not resolved in that, we wouldn't even be here having a conversation. You see, Jesus is on a mission to get there and to die, and he knows that all kinds of things are going to get in the way. He knows that it's going to be hard And when Jesus completed that mission, when he got to Jerusalem, he followed through on the one act that gives us the ability, the freedom, to be here today talking about being restored. You see, without that one simple act of dying on the cross, we can't even have the conversation about what it looks like to be made new, what it looks like to to find rest in him. Jesus died on the cross, his life for yours, and his pain made good on the promise of new life. That promise is foreshadowed all throughout the Old Testament. But one one passage that I want to read to you today comes from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet of God. He was foretelling uh, of Jesus coming to earth to do this for us, to save us. And I love this passage from Isaiah chapter 43, verses 15 through 20. It says, I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's creator and king. I am the Lord who opened a way through the waters, making a dry path through the sea. I called forth the mighty army of Egypt with all its chariots and horses. I drew them beneath the waves and they drowned. Their lives snuffed out like a smoldering candle wick. Remember your Egypt, right? We talked about this last week. It's like, remember that God rescued his people from Egypt and he's going to do that again. Verse 18, but forget all that. 
because what I did in Egypt, when I brought 10 plagues and saved you from Pharaoh and, and part of the Red Sea and, and saved you, forget all that because it is nothing compared to what I'm going to do. For I'm about to do something new. See, I've already begun. Don't you see it? I will make a pathway through the wilderness. I will create rivers in the dry wasteland. The wild animals in the fields will thank me, the jackals and the owls too, for giving them water in the desert. Yes, I will make rivers in the dry wasteland so my chosen people can be refreshed. Refreshed. Man, I want that. And that is what is given to us when we are resting in Christ. Our restoration is guaranteed because of Jesus' resolution. Tomorrow, our country celebrates the leadership of a man who understood this, who understood resolve for the sake of the gospel, Dr. Martin Luther King. His entire life would just be a, a, like a quote, but I share a few words that he wrote on resolve and on what is right. He says, courage is an inner resolution to go forward despite obstacles. Cowardice is submissive surrender to circumstances. Courage breeds creativity. Cowardice represses fear and is mastered by it. Cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And there comes a time when we must take a position that is neither safe nor politic nor popular, but one must take it because it is right. You know, at times we may feel that we do not need God, he writes, but on the day when the storms of disappointment rage, the winds of disaster blow and the tidal waves of grief beat against our lives. If we do not have a deep and patient faith, our emotional lives will be ripped to shreds. There is so much frustration in the world because we have relied on gods rather than God. We have genuflected before the God of science only to find that it has given us the atomic bomb, producing fears and anxieties that science can never mitigate. We've worshipped the God of pleasure only to discover that thrills play out and sensations are short-lived. We have bowed before the God of money only to learn that there are such things as love and friendship that money cannot buy. And that in a world of possible depressions, stock market crashes, and bad business investments, money is a rather uncertain deity. These transitory gods are not able to save us or bring happiness to the human heart. Only God is able. It is faith in Him that we must rediscover. And with this faith, we can transform bleak and desolate valleys in the sunlit paths of joy and bring new light into the dark caverns of pessimism. Amen. Martin Luther King was resolved. He was resolved to see racial equity restored because he wanted people to notice the love of his Savior, Jesus Christ. And today, I don't, I don't know the intimate details of your story. God is writing stories all over the place, and, and I just I consider it joy whenever I get like a little window into somebody's story. But I know this. We all have battles to fight. We all have battles to fight. But there is one battle that you and I try to fight all the time that you and I cannot win, and it is the battle versus sin. Jesus was resolved to win the war against sin and death, and he calls you and I to take notice of that. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says it really plainly. It says, thank God, thank him, not yourself. He gave us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has won that battle. And instead of us trying to, to fix ourselves or our sin, instead of us trying to self-help our way out of problems, we must fight to let Jesus fix us. That's the fight that we're called to. 
The other battles of life are battles to get to Jesus so that Jesus can win the battle against sin. We recognize this in scriptures like Ephesians 6.12. It says, For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And then we're reminded, even in that, that those battles are, are still won by the Lord. Proverbs 21.31 says, The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. So Jesus wins the battle for sin, and, and our battle to fight is the one that, that gets us in the presence of Jesus. It's the one that, that allows us to rest in him and not in ourselves. So, so how do we do that? What are the battles that you and I have to fight to, to remain with Jesus so that we can be restored by him? There are three battles that we see here in this passage in Luke 9 that we have to fight to remain with Jesus. There's a battle with ourself, there's a battle with our emotions, and there's a battle with commitment. If you still got that, your scripture turned to, to Luke 9, you can see some of these verses there as different people begin to interact with Jesus. First battle is the battle of self, right? Verse 57 says, as they were walking along, right? So they've left, they, they didn't stop in this town because of the Samaritans. They're walking along, and someone says to Jesus, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. I'm in. Right? Like, wherever you go, I am with you, Jesus. Like, I've seen you do great things. I will give my life to you. But Jesus replied, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. Jesus, what are you, what? I just said I'd follow you. What are you talking about? He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. When you follow me, things like you just saw happen, like total rejection, that's going to happen. Even animals, they've got, they've got places to go, places to live, but, but the Son of Man, me, I don't have a place to lay my head down. I'm on a journey to Jerusalem. I'm resolutely setting out for that place, and it's not going to be easy. There are a lot of times when myself is going to have to die, so that I, and I'm reminded of why I'm going to Jerusalem if I'm going to get there. And so we learn, right, that in this battle to, to follow Jesus, it's not just raise your hand and say, yes, I follow Jesus. It's a battle with yourself to say, I'm going to stay with him. And if you want to be with Jesus, it's going to cost you something. Even these three initiatives that are, that are simple, right, they're, they're going to cost you something. If you want to be in Scripture every day, it's going to cost you maybe some sleep or some time. If you want to see friends and family rescued by Jesus, it means that you're going to have to put yourself and your reputation on the line. It might even mean more than that. And we're just breaking the tip of the ice. There's a battle with yourself that you have to win if you want to follow Jesus. So the question becomes, what are you willing to endure to keep in step with him? What are you willing to endure to keep in step with him? There's a battle with yourself. And there's also a battle with your emotions. Verse 59, Jesus says to another person, come, follow me. So Jesus invites them in, right? He's like, come on, come, come follow me, come with me. And the man agreed. He's like, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm coming. But, he said, Lord, first, let me return home and bury my father. Well, my heart, my emotions immediately go with this guy. Like, your, your dad just passed away. Jesus is calling you to go with him, but your dad just passed away. Like, oh, emotionally, like, I'm with you, man. It says, but Jesus told him, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. Like, Jesus, that is not nice. 
That is, Jesus, that is just not nice. Why would you say that? Jesus gives us an example because here's the reality. As incredible and as important as it is that, that this man be with his father as he buries him, it still pales in comparison to being with Jesus when he forgives him of his sins. That's hard, right? Our emotions are like torn. We have to wrestle with that. But how you handle your emotions says a lot about your relationship with Christ. Because you see, in Christ, we are often more alive. We, we, we feel more, right? We, we recognize more of what's going on in our world. Like, emotions are a good thing. And at the same time, we're called to more self-control than we ever have been, too. And so the life in Christ truly is more, but, but there's more responsibility with more emotion. <clears throat> Whenever I think about this, I think about um, walking into a restroom with my toddler children. Stay with me. How many of you, uh, this is like purely hypothetical, right? <laughs> this didn't actually happen. You're sitting in the restroom with your child who you're trying to coax into using the restroom, and all of a sudden, like, their voice, whether it's loud or not, is like a 10. Everything they say is super loud. And then let's just say hypothetically, somebody comes in. It's a guy because I'm in the guy's restroom. In the stall beside you, and they have some gas that is released. And you're saying this prayer inside of your head. Lord, please don't let them say anything. Please don't let them say anything. Please don't let them. Please let them be in control of their emotions in this one moment, God. And then the child goes, Daddy, what was that? <laughs> it's terrible, right? It's not wrong that they ask and you really want to answer, but you're really not sure what to say in that moment. And over time, I'm just really hopeful that my kids will learn that there's a better time, like there's a, a better way to express those emotions, uh, like maybe once they leave or once we get out of the bathroom, or maybe not on a, a level of 10 out of 10. I don't know. One of the three. I'll take any of it. But when I think about that, I think about our growth and our spiritual maturity as Christians, right? It's not wrong to have emotions. Emotions are good and they are God-given. But as we grow in Him, we're also given the ability through the Spirit to learn how to control those emotions. And so what we find here is a real battle to win the war with our emotions. And as we do that, we actually get to stay closer to Christ. It's not that He doesn't want you to feel. It's not that He doesn't want you to, to have joy or pain or any of those things. We may feel them more, but, but as we grow and mature, we have more responsibility to be in control of those emotions. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 11, actually uh, supports this idea, right? It's not just an idea. It says, fools vent their anger, but the wise quietly hold it back. And so we see wisdom in this. That, and we see wisdom in this, uh, you know, this passage that Jesus gives us. Like, if you want to really follow Jesus, your emotions are something that you're going to have to be in control of. You've got you to be in control of yourself. You've got to win that battle. You've got to win the battle with your emotions. And finally, you have to win the battle with commitment. And this is a tough one for our, our culture for generation, whatever, like all the stereotypes you want to give, right? Like commitment is just hard right now. Verse 61 says, another person comes up to Jesus. He's resolutely walking to Jerusalem. 
Another one comes up and says, yes, Lord, I will follow, but first, let me say goodbye to my family. Isn't this kind of like our heart? Again, like I can put my heart right there with that guy. Like, yeah, Lord, I will follow you, but first, like there's one thing I got to get in there before, before I get to you. Yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me fill in the blank. What is that for you? What is that for you? Commitment, you see, isn't about perfection. Commitment isn't about always getting it right or always doing the right thing. Commitment is about priority. Commitment is about priority. And when we overpromise and underdeliver, we hurt our witness. I did it this week. I do it all the time. I need grace in it, but I also need the truth of the scripture that says you can't do that. We have to win the war on commitment. And let me maybe own that a step further in terms of spiritual leadership. I believe that the commitment, uh, that commitment's in crisis in our society in part because of what has been modeled by many of the spiritual leaders in our country. I was having a conversation with another pastor this week. We started talking about friends we knew that had had moral failure as a spiritual leader. We were talking about people in the news who had had moral failure and were spiritual leaders. And we started asking ourselves why, because when we're completely honest, it, like, it, scares, it scares us. It scares us. Why is this happening? And as we really begin to press into our hearts and our, our souls, it was like, you know what? I think we've convinced ourselves oftentimes as spiritual leaders that we're too important to rest. We're too important to take the Sabbath. We're too important to, to sit and be restored by God because we've got important work to do. And so it's common to hear and see, even from pastors and spiritual leaders, yes, Lord, I'm following you, but first, I've got to take care of this. I've got to get this done. It starts with us. And so we shouldn't be surprised when, when we see our, our society, our culture, struggling with this idea of just being committed to the Lord first. It's not about perfection, but it's about priority. What's... What's in that blank for you? Yes, Lord, I, I want to follow you, but first let me, what are you wanting to do before resting in Christ? These three ideas, these three fights that we have to win in ourselves, our emotion, our commitment, these all point to why we do Love Shelbyville Days. All right? When we, when we do Love Shelbyville Days, we go serve because it moves us towards people not like us. It forces us to get outside of ourselves. We go serve because it challenges us to be uncomfortable and, and to get out there. We go serve because when we get into these situations, we feel things that we've never felt before. We're challenged to grow. We're faced with emotions and situations that, that are hard for us to reconcile. We go serve because it shows our commitment to the mission of God to save the world through His Son, Jesus Christ, and, and for us to be a part of it. And so what we see is that these Love Shelville days help us to fight to remain with Jesus. But that's just one day a month, right? And it's all for now if we don't fight that fight every day of our lives. And that is on each of us as a church. It's on us as a group. This passage ends by quoting Jesus. And it says, verse 62, But Jesus told him, Anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. So the question that, that we wrestle with as we end this sermon, right, is, is which kingdom are we fit for? Have we put our hands to the plow of Jesus and said, no turning back, right? Jesus plus nothing. 
Or are we fit for this earthly kingdom where there are some things that we want and Jesus just happens to be on the list? Which of those phrases best describe us as a church? Which of those phrases best describe you? We have to fight to be with Jesus. We have to fight to be with him because it's when we're with him that we are restored by him. Because he's already guaranteed the restoration by his resolution to make it to the cross. Let's honor him by winning those fights with ourselves, with our emotions, and with our commitment. What fight is Jesus asking you to win this morning? As the band comes back, we're going to respond. Response looks different for everyone. It's not coerced. It's, it's between you and the Holy Spirit. The way that we respond give us a chance to win those fights, though. See, when, we're, when we as baptized believers partake in communion, which we do up here every Sunday, you can come forward, take a piece of the bread, and dip it in the juice. When we take part in that, we're remembering that it wasn't us who fixed our sin problem in the first place. It was Jesus. When we're faithful to give or when we're faithful to spend time in prayer with God and let him truly search our heart, we are landing a punch in that battle with our emotions. We're saying, Jesus, in this moment, I'm going to control what I do and I'm going to do something that honors and obeys you. And there's restoration in that. We make a decision to to follow Jesus or to take a next step with the mission of loving God and loving people. We are boldly stepping into that fight of commitment saying, even though it feels weird, even though nobody else maybe is doing it, I'm going to boldly step in to commitment. So what fight is Jesus asking you to win this morning? My prayer is that the Spirit would speak clearly to you and that you would have the courage to step into the ring, to be restored by the one who guaranteed your restoration. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. Steve will lead us in singing as we respond today. Heavenly Father, you love us. You love us as a father loves his children. So God, today I pray that that we would feel your love exactly how we need to. Whether we need to recognize that you've given us grace, that we don't have to be perfect, and that, that we can find rest in you from our burdens, or whether we need to hear the truth of the gospel that helps us to realize that we have sin in the first place. God, I pray that your word would reign. I pray that our responses would be, would be holy and obedient. God, I pray that you give us the courage to keep going outside of ourselves with our faith, joining you outside the gates. Father God, I pray that our worship this morning would be a reflection of our heart. But more than that, I pray that it would be a time where we see the presence of God. Where we rest in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.